Welcome to The Climb Podcast. I'm Lynn Robbins. Joining me in the studio today is the Associate Director of Climb, Dr. John Ilgen. John and I will be discussing how he approaches teaching clinical reasoning. Dr. Ilgen is an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Welcome, John. Thank you for having me. So, John, I know that you've thought a lot about clinical reasoning, and you're often asked for tips about how to best prepare teachers to teach clinical reasoning skills. Could you tell me a little bit about what guidance you give them? Sure. I mean, I think the first thing to remember is that clinical reasoning is not a discrete skill. It's a combination of lots of different skills. It's it's communication, it's knowledge, it's um, application of knowledge. It's kind of everything that we do when we're in the clinical environment, and I think there's been a lot of focus on the cognitive aspects, but I think in some ways unpacking it um, into its various different elements helps to give people um, the sense that there's lots of different ways you can approach this problem um, and lots of other things that you can pay attention to as you're watching learners to see where, you know, which parts of the clinical reasoning do they seem to be struggling with most and, and kind of hone your teaching um, in regards to that. If you were sitting down with a colleague who was just starting out, what are some of the first things you would tell that colleague? One of the primary uh, ways that people have taught clinical reasoning is around the concept of illness scripts. Illness scripts are these ideas that this idea that we we think about clinical problems um, related to scripts, and each problem that we're thinking about has a particular script that's unique to our experiences with that particular illness. And so, inside that script, for for example, heart failure is the basic science and and physiology that you learned about um, in your preclinical training, um, and then that is enriched very much by your experiences around that particular problem. And, and each of the illnesses that we come to work with, especially ones that we see frequently um, around particular chief complaints like shortness of breath, gets enhanced by our individual experiences. And so I think the first thing is just knowing that scripts exist and, and what goes into a script and making those pieces of your own script more explicit to the novices is a really nice place to start. So you would sit down and talk to your colleague about perhaps using an illness script as a way to conceptualize for a learner how to engage with patients around a particular problem? Is that around what a particular complaint. I think one of the challenges that students have is that they generally grow up in a disease-oriented framework. So they learn about heart failure on Monday, and on Tuesday they learn about COPD, and on Wednesday they learn about um, pericardial tamponade. Historically, there's, there was very little linkage between those different complaints such that when somebody comes in with shortness of breath, um, which could be caused by any of those three things, it was very hard for students to sort, you know, which parts of the history are discriminatory between CHF and COPD, which, you know, which parts of the history of the exam are discriminatory for tamponade, et cetera. Um, and so students are kind of frozen. You know, mm-hmm. they, you know, when they know the diagnosis, they know what to do and they know what's underlying that, that complaint. But when you bring them just the complaint that's undifferentiated, that's hard for them. I think what I would encourage the novice educator to think about is start with a complaint, you know, shortness of breath. And if you think about a Venn diagram where you have each of those three different pathologies intersecting with that complaint, then the exercise becomes, all right, well, what about this history makes you think it's more likely to be congestive heart failure, COPD, tamponade? You know, how would you distinguish between those things based on your physical exam? And then, you know, tests, et cetera, that all go along with those various different scripts. So you have to find complaints, first of all, that are 
that that works for, right? There mm-hmm. are some things that you can't distinguish a particular type of acute kidney injury, for example, from another based on a physical exam and history necessarily. You need additional tests. And so that may not be the right time to deploy this model. But for example, when I'm teaching very novice medical students um, in the colleges here, we actually have them do this as part of their write-ups with their patients. We have them do what's called a diagnostic matrix, where the rows across horizontally are the pathologies. And then the, the columns, there are three columns. One is history. The second is past medical history and risk factors, and the third is physical exam. Essentially, you know, if you write out the prototypical findings for each of the three or four diagnoses that you have under consideration, the students can then see, oh, let's see, I've got a lot of overlap with this particular patient and this row of that matrix. Um, And it helps them to see, okay, well, actually, that question is a really important one to ask because it helps me to say that's much more likely to be heart failure than it is to be the other things, for example. One of the things that I'm very clear with my students is that they are reasoning from walking into the door, they've started doing some reasoning. In fact, one of the, one of my favorite exercises is to walk in with my whole group, introduce ourselves to the patient, and I will have prepared the patient that we were going to do this exercise, and I immediately have our, all the students turn around and face away from the patient, and I ask them, what do you know about this patient? Basically honing this, this skill of observation. So, you know, I noticed that there are balloons in the corner. Okay, it sounds like that person probably has some social supports. I see that there's a bag of fluids hanging. Okay, that might be something that we should look at. Um, I see that the person has a cell phone on the table. That means they are resourced enough to have a cell phone, for example. Um, and so it's, a, it's an opportunity from the very beginning to say, you're already thinking about social determinants, for example, as it pertains to this person's illness. You're recognizing whether they look sick or they don't look sick. You will get an acuity sort of um, sense just based on walking in the door. And one of the things I will sometimes do with my students after they take their history is I will pull them out of the room before they do their physical exam and say, give me your one-liner about this person. So it's, you know, 35-year-old male presenting with acute chest pain. Okay, what do you think might be going on? And then we'll go through you know, maybe this is a heart attack, maybe this is anxiety, maybe this is pneumonia. And for each of those things, we will emphasize what are the questions that matter for each of, you know, for that particular problem? What, how would you use your physical exam to either confirm or disconfirm that diagnosis? And then we'll go into the room together and do the physical exam around those particular things so that we're emphasizing both the benchmarks, but then also helping them to sort between those various diagnoses. They then give an oral case presentation about the patient to their peers, and then eventually do the, the write-up. So for each of those things, they may have had you know two or three times thinking about that differential and where those pieces of history and exam and risks all fit together. It sounds like you're actually teaching students to be good observers and good hypothesis generators, and then good synthesizers. I think it's all those things. Mm-hmm. I think you know, a lot of w- the way that reasoning has been traditionally conceptualized is it's about just synthesis. All the information is given to you, and your job is to crack the code and figure out what the sort of magical diagnosis that sort of the clouds part and you save the patient because you know what's going on. That's not really how clinical reasoning happens in practice. It's, it's how you pick up on clues based on how a patient looks. It's paying attention to how a patient answers the question, not just the words, but you know what are, what's their body language? What are the things that they're doing in nonverbal ways to tell you um, some clues, for example? The other piece that I tell my students is I want them to pay a lot of attention about how they're feeling in the context of, a, of an interview, because that is often the way that your subconscious manifests in the way that you behave with patients. You know, what is it about this person's history that makes you feel uncomfortable or whatever it might be? 
because I think there's a lot of knowledge that is stored and just not applied. And I think paying attention to some of those physiologic manifestations of it is a clue to you that you should slow down, ask for help, you know, whatever it might be to, to think more thoroughly about that particular problem. You have to always be aware of where your learner is going in their mind. How do you give learners feedback based on what's going on in their minds, and how do you direct them? So for me, a lot of sort of figuring out where somebody is has to do with the nuances that they can explain back to me of why they're thinking about one thing versus another, and and then you tailor your instruction thereafter. So you're diagnosing the learner, the learner's diagnosing the patient. It's sort of like an M.C. Escher thing that's endless. Is Mm -hmm. that... Yeah, I think that's right. I think you're I think you're diagnosing the learner around various different things. Mm-hmm. They may be very facile with a part of the history and less facile about other parts. So they may be really good about the diagnosis and not so good about the management, for example, both of which are part of clinical reasoning. And so, you know, they may know very well what this is, but have no idea what to do with it. Um, and so, again, trying to find those inflection points for each encounter, I think, is important. And I think it's also important to make explicit when I'm feeling uncomfortable and to not grandstand about what I do or don't know. If I'm feeling uncomfortable, I'm going to tell them, listen, I, I think you're pretty, I think you're right that it's this thing, but I don't feel very comfortable managing that problem. We should probably go call a friend, look it up, you know, spend more time thinking about this, whatever it might be, to again, kind of model those behaviors of, you know, what do you do when you're not sure? Um, because I think that's a lot of the way that uh, work in medicine is, is, sort of acting in those periods of, of uncertainty or not complete certainty. So if I go back to my original question, with, which was about what would you tell a novice teacher about how to teach clinical reasoning, one of the things that you would say is ask a lot of questions. I think that's fair. Yep. And so I guess what I'm struggling with is how do I learn which questions might be important? So this is an inter- intersection between knowledge and experience is what you're getting at here. The knowledge piece of this is very much related to illness scripts, sort of typical typical presentations of those prototypical diagnoses you're thinking about, right? So the right questions to ask are the ones that will help to discriminate the things that are on your differential, assuming that you and I have the same differential, um, which can be which is a first thing just to pay attention to is that what's in your head may not actually be the same thing that is going on in your learner's head. I think the second thing is recognizing that even your illness scripts are idiosyncratic based on the experiences that you've had. And so some of the strange and unusual questions that you're asking um, may be because you've seen something strange and unusual around this particular illness script. And, And I think also just recognizing that those types of questions will come to you very quickly because you've seen something and you've learned from that experience and they have not yet had that experience of learning from that. So this is you kind of sharing what's inside your brain with with them. So this is a really interesting mode of teaching that you're describing, which is really more like a conversation than a one-way transmission of information. Is that how you would describe what's happening then when you're teaching? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a, sort of a call and respond, right? It's, it's <laughs> yeah. you sort of... Um, and I think as, as you get farther in, I think what you what I've realized is that I can, you know, I'll ask a question and then depending on the response that you get back, I can ask either a more basic or a more sophisticated question. Maybe I'll get all the way to the level with a senior resident around, you know, tell me about which of the physical exam findings has the best predictive value for this particular problem, right? That's not a question I can ask a first-year student. When you do faculty development, 
how do you break down the skills that they'll have to develop? So I don't think there's a recipe, but I think that what I would leave with is this idea of having a toolbox. If you are trying to encourage the skill of observation, you'll have a toolbox around what that looks like. When I work clinically, one of my favorite things to do is to identify particularly poignant presentations of particular problems and have my students I'll, again, I'll prep the patient so that they're um, ready for this, but I'll basically tell the students, so you're allowed to go to the bedside, and I want you to look carefully, but you can't ask any questions, and then come back and tell me what you found, right? So there's a skill of observation. And then if it's about synthesis, well, we're doing that a lot in the context of the oral case presentation. So if you use things like the one-minute preceptor, um, that's a nice uh, way of building confidence around synthesis and differential building in a fairly um, efficient manner. If it's about building confidence confidence in one's ability to manage problems. So if I've got a fourth year resident who's two months away from graduation, um, I'm actually trying to build that person's confidence that they can be an independent practitioner. So I may try something called um, the Aunt Minnie model, which is this idea if you see Aunt Minnie walking down the street and it walks like Aunt Minnie and talks like Aunt Minnie, it's probably Aunt Minnie. Um, and so for prototypical presentations or prototypical problems that experienced residents feel very comfortable managing. I may tell them, I don't want you to present that patient to me. I want you to tell me their chief complaint, what you think it is and what you're going to do. And that's all. I don't want to hear anything more about their history. I'll go take my own history. And then my conversation on the back end is, yes, I agree. Carry on. Or here's a little nuance on that particular problem. But we're focusing on different parts of that progression. Um, it just depends on, on who you're teaching and what the problem is. And there are certainly cases on that same shift with the fourth year when they've got a complex patient with a complex problem. You better believe I want to hear the whole history because even I am stretching my own clinical reasoning abilities to, to try to figure out what's going on. And so, again, it's that's that tailoring. And for me, it's this is the most fun thing that I do. Um, but if there's not there's not a prescriptive way to do it in every case or else you're not tailoring it to the, to the particular situation. No, I love that idea of the toolbox. We talked a little bit about the movement from novice to expert. How do you assess where somebody is along that continuum? Ways that you can assess knowledge very quickly and efficiently and reliably are things like multiple choice questions. So doing well on the in-service has relevance to practice, right? So if it's about knowledge, foundation, multiple choice questions. If it's about um, synthesis and sorting information, there are there are nuanced ways of asking multiple choice questions called key features examinations or um, script concordance testing, um, which are more involved questions that ask learners to essentially weight information um, or sort of decide how a particular piece of information is going to change how they think about a particular problem. But then if you get into things like um, application of knowledge or communication skills or gathering information, those are not good modalities. So things like direct observation. Turns out that's a pretty good way of looking at people's um, at least ability to communicate with a patient about what they're thinking now. What's in their head is a whole other thing. So simulation or direct observation might be ways to kind of get at that. The challenge here is that a lot of this stuff isn't even available to the person who's thinking, right? It's below their sub below their conscious awareness, and so you know trying to really get at the roots of people's challenges can be really tricky because all you see is what they manifest as behaviors. Um, and so um, you really have to do multiple observations at multiple points in time with multiple different problems to really get a good sense of, you know, where is this person, right? Um, because if I happen to, you know, bring you to a case that you've seen before um, and you're really comfortable with, you're going to look really different. You know, again, the orthopedist example, if I bring you knee pain, you're going to look great. If I bring you a 
know, patient in labor, you're not going to look so great. And so we have to remember that when we're sampling um, these observations about a particular learner, context matters a ton. And so you have to sample across different contexts. The other piece that we need to be mindful of is that each of us is heavily biased by our own experiences as raters, right? So if I'm going as a preceptor and I'm observing somebody in a particular patient encounter, if I bring along one of my colleagues who says, you know, same training but different experiences, they may think very differently about this person's abilities than I do. Experts are very different, right? So if we show the same problem to two experts, they probably are going to think about it slightly different ways based on their past experiences. We sort of hold up learners to our standard, you know, to what would seem to be right for us, but that's not really a gold standard in any way. So I think that's where the multiple readers, multiple contexts, multiple observations will give you the most nuanced understanding of where someone's abilities are. Is there a topic we haven't approached that you feel like you want to say something about? Uncertainty is actually, it's the most challenging and satisfying part of our work. It's the hardest part of, of our work, and I, particularly with learners who are accustomed to getting right answers, it can be a really big transition to go from a, a setting where you've been a multiple choice expert and demonstrated that you can answer lots of different problems accurately and then transition to awards where it seems like you can't answer any questions correctly. So I think some of this is just really kind of trying to model this sense of, wow, this is hard, this is great. You know, that that uncertainty is actually something to be celebrated and to realize that that's, number one, you know, where where really expertise is, is most manifest. And number two, where you're most likely to learn things and sort of notion that uncertainty is actually in some ways good for our patients as well. So, um, you know, when we focus just on diagnosis, for example, um, we expose people to tests that they don't need, um, which have their own inherent risks. Um, we also treat patients as their diagnoses, right? So, and we do this um, uh, quite a bit actually in medicine where we'll say, you know, I'm gonna go see the, I'm gonna go see the ankle fracture in room five, right? That's not a patient that, you know, I'm going to go see the patient in room five who has an ankle fracture, right? Um, but we treat people as their diagnoses, and that implies that they have a prototypical lived experience with that particular problem, right? So an ankle fracture in, in, you know, in me is experienced very differently than an ankle fracture in one of the Seattle Seahawks who may never play his professional football again, right? That's a very different illness experience. Um, and so, again, kind of focusing around diagnosis tends to minimize that. And so I think, you know, trying to sort of maintain curiosity around people's problems and saying, you know what, I'm not really sure why you're experiencing that differently, but that's a good challenge for us to work on together. Um, versus saying, oh, you know, you've just got back pain. Um, I know how back pain looks and that's, you know, you're going to be just fine, right? As opposed to really being curious about, you know, why is it that you're experiencing in such an awful way and it's debilitating in those ways? So I think to me kind of coming back to this sort of patient-centered diagnostic or patient-centered clinical reasoning, not diagnosis-centered clinical reasoning is really important. Well, thanks for coming in, John. This was a really rich discussion. This has been fun. Thanks for having me. So we hope you enjoyed this CLIMB podcast on how to teach clinical reasoning. Check out the other podcasts in this series for helpful tips on how to teach effectively and efficiently in busy clinical settings. 